Chapter Eight, Part Three of Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Famous Stories Every Child Should Know, edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Chapter Eight: The Man Without a Country, Part Three by edward everett hale there is a story that nolan met burr once on one of our vessels when a party of americans came on board in the mediterranean but this i believe to be a lie or rather it is a myth ben trovato involving a tremendous blowing up with which he sunk burr asking him how he liked to be without a country but it is clear from burr's life that nothing of the sort could have happened and I mention this only as an illustration of the stories which get a-going when there is the least mystery at bottom. Philip Nolan, poor fellow, repented of his folly, and then, like a man, submitted to the fate he had asked for. He never intentionally added to the difficulty or delicacy of the charge of those who had him in hold. Accidents would happen, but never from his fault. Lieutenant Truxton told me that, when Texas was annexed, there was a careful discussion among the officers whether they should get hold of Nolan's handsome set of maps and cut Texas out of it, from the map of the world and the map of Mexico. The United States had been cut out when the Atlas was bought for him, but it was voted, rightly enough, that this would be virtually to reveal to him what had happened, or, as Harry Cole said, to make him think old Burr has succeeded. So it was from no fault of Nolan's that a great botch happened at my own table, when, for a short time, I was in command of the George Washington Corvette on the South American station. We were lying in the La Plata, and some of the officers, who had been on shore and had just joined again, were entertaining us with accounts of their misadventures in riding the half-wild horses of Buenos Aires. Nolan was at table, and was in an unusually bright and talkative mood. Some story of a tumble reminded him of an adventure of his own when he was catching wild horses in Texas, with his adventurous cousin, at a time when he must have been quite a boy. He told the story with a good deal of spirit, so much so that the silence which often follows a good story hung over the table for an instant, to be broken by Nolan himself, for he asked perfectly unconsciously, pray what has become of texas after the mexicans got their independence i thought the province of texas would come forward very fast it is really one of the finest regions on earth it is the italy of the continent but i have not seen or heard a word from texas for nearly twenty years there were two texan officers at the table the reason he had never heard of Texas was that Texas and her affairs had been painfully cut out of his newspapers since Austin began his settlements, so that, while he read of Honduras and Tamaulipas, and till quite lately of California, this virgin province in which his brother had travelled so far, and I believe had died, had ceased to be to him. Waters and Williams, the two Texas men, looked grimly at each other and tried not to laugh edward morris had his attention attracted by the third link in the chain of the captain's chandelier watrous was seized with a convulsion of sneezing 
nolan himself saw that something was to pay he did not know what and i as master of the feast had to say texas is out of the map mr nolan have you seen captain back's curious account of sir thomas rowe's welcome after that cruise i never saw nolan again i wrote to him at least twice a year for in that voyage we became even confidentially intimate but he never wrote to me the other men tell me that in those fifteen years he aged very fast as well he might indeed but that he was still the same gentle uncomplaining silent sufferer that he ever was bearing as best he could his self-appointed punishment rather less social perhaps with new men he did not know but more anxious apparently than ever to serve and befriend and teach the boys some of whom fairly seemed to worship him and now it seems the dear old fellow is dead he has found a home at last and a country since writing this and while considering whether or not i would print it as a warning to the young nolans and valandiams and tatnells of to-day of what it is to throw away a country i have received from danforth who is on board the levant a letter which gives an account of nolan's last hours it removes all my doubts about telling this story the reader will understand danforth's letter or the beginning of it if he will remember that after ten years of nolan's exile every one who had him in charge was in a very delicate position the government had failed to renew the order of eighteen o seven regarding him what was a man to do should he let him go what then if he were called to account by the department for violating the order of eighteen o seven should he keep him what then if nolan should be liberated some day and should bring an action of forced imprisonment or kidnapping against every man who had had him in charge i urged and pressed this upon southard and i have reason to think that other officers did the same thing but the secretary always said as they so often do at washington that there were no special orders to give and that we must act on our own judgment that means if you succeed you will be sustained if you fail you will be disavowed well as danforth said all that is over now though i do not know but i expose myself to a criminal prosecution on the evidence of the very revelation i am making here is the letter levant two degrees two seconds south at a hundred and thirty one degrees west dear fred i try to find heart and life to tell you that it is all over with dear old nolan i have been with him on this voyage more than i ever was and i can understand wholly now the way in which you used to speak of the dear old fellow i could see that he was not strong but i had no idea the end was so near the doctor has been watching him very carefully and yesterday morning came to me and told me that nolan was not so well and had not left his stateroom a thing i never remember before he had let the doctor come and see him as he lay there the first time the doctor had been in the stateroom and he said he should like to see me oh dear do you remember the mysteries we boys used to invent about his room in the old intrepid days well i went in and there to be sure the poor fellow lay in his berth smiling pleasantly as he gave me his hand but looking very frail i could not help a glance round which showed me what a little shrine he had made of the box he was lying in the stars and stripes were triced up above and around a picture of washington and he had painted a majestic eagle with lightnings blazed from his beak and his foot just clasping the whole globe 
which his wings overshadowed. The dear old boy saw my glance and said with a sad smile, Here, you see, I have a country. And then he pointed to the foot of his bed, where I had not seen before a great map of the United States, as he had drawn it from memory, and which he had there to look upon as he lay. Quaint, queer old names were on it, in large letters. Indiana Territory, Mississippi Territory, and Louisiana Territory. I suppose our fathers learned such things, but the old fellow had patched in Texas, too. He had carried his western boundary all the way to the Pacific, but on that shore he had defined nothing. Oh, Captain, he said, I know I am dying. I cannot get home. Surely you will tell me something now. Stop, stop, do not speak till I say what I am sure you know. And there is not in this ship, that there is not in America, God bless her, a more loyal man than I. There cannot be a man who loves the old flag as I do, or prays for it as I do, or hopes for it as I do. There are thirty-four stars in it now, Danforth. I thank God for that, though I do not know what their names are. There has never been one taken away. I thank God for that. I know by that that there has never been any successful burr. Oh, Danforth, Danforth, he sighed out. How like a wretched night's dream a boy's idea of personal fame or of separate sovereignty seems, when one looks back on it after such a life as mine. But tell me, tell me something, tell me everything, Danforth, before I die. Ingham, I swear to you that I felt like a monster, that I had not told him everything before. Danger or no danger, delicacy or no delicacy, who was I, that I should have been acting the tyrant all this time, over this dear sainted old man who had years ago expiated in his whole manhood's life the madness of a boy's treason mr nolan said i i will tell you everything you ask about only where shall i begin oh the blessed smile that crept over his white face and he pressed my hand and said god bless you tell me their names he said and he pointed to the stars on the flag the last I know is Ohio. My father lived in Kentucky. But I have guessed Michigan and Indiana and Mississippi. That was where Fort Adams is. They make twenty. But where are your other fourteen? You have not cut up any of the old ones, I hope. Well, that was not a bad text, and I told him the names in as good order as I could. But he bade me take down his beautiful map and draw them in as best I could with my pencil. He was wild with delight about Texas, told me how his cousin died there. He had marked a gold cross near where he supposed his grave was, because he had never been permitted to land on that shore, though the ships were there so much. And the men, said he, laughing, brought off a good deal besides furs. Then he went back, heavens how far, to tell about the Chesapeake, and what was done to Barrow for surrendering her to the leopard, and whether Burr ever tried again and he ground his teeth with the only passion he showed. But in a moment that was over, and he said, God forgive me, for I am sure I forgive him. Then he asked about the old war, told me the true story of his serving the gun the day we took the Java, asked about dear old David Porter, as he often called him. Then he settled down more quietly, and very happily, to hear me tell in an hour the history of fifty years. How I wished it had been somebody who knew something. But I did as well as I could. I told him of the English war, 
I told him about Fulton and the steamboat beginning. I told him about Old Scott and Jackson. Told him all I could think of about the Mississippi and New Orleans and Texas and his own old Kentucky. And do you think, he asked, who was in command of the Legion of the West? I told him it was a very gallant officer named Grant, and that, by our last news, he was about to establish his headquarters at Vicksburg. Then, where was Vicksburg? I worked that out on the map. It was about a hundred miles, more or less, above his old Fort Adams, and I thought Fort Adams must be a ruin now. It must be at Old Vic's plantation, at Walnut Hill, said he. Well, that is a change. I tell you, Ingham, it was a hard thing to condense the history of half a sentence into that talk with a sick man, and I do not now know what I told him of emigration and the means of it, of steamboats and railroads and telegraphs, of inventions and books and literature, of the colleges and West Point and the Naval School, but with the queerest interruptions that you ever heard. You see, it was Robinson Crusoe asking all the accumulated questions of fifty-six years. I remember he asked all of a sudden, who was president now? And when I told him, he asked if old Abe was General Benjamin Lincoln's son. He said he met old General Lincoln when he was quite a boy himself, at some Indian treaty. I said no, that old Abe was a Kentuckian like himself, but I could not tell him of what family. He had worked up from the ranks. Good for him, cried Nolan. I am glad of that. As I have brooded and wondered, I have thought our danger was in keeping up those regular successions in the first families. And I got talking about my visit to Washington. I told him of meeting the Oregon Congressman Harding. I told him about the Smithsonian and the exploring expedition. I told him about the Capitol and the statues for the pediment and Crawford's library and Greenough's Washington. Ingham, I told him everything I could think of that would show the grandeur of his country and its prosperity. But I could not make up my mouth to tell him a word about his infernal rebellion. And he drank it in and enjoyed it as I cannot tell you. He grew more and more silent, yet I never thought he was tired or faint. I gave him a glass of water, but he just wet his lips and told me not to go away. Then he asked me to bring the Presbyterian Book of Public Prayer, which lay there, and said with a smile that it would open at the right place, and so it did. There was a double red mark down the page, and I knelt down and read, and he repeated with me, For ourselves and our country, O gracious God, we thank thee that, notwithstanding our manifold transgressions of thy holy laws, thou hast continued to us thy marvellous kindness. And so to the end of that thanksgiving, then he turned to the end of the same book, and I read the words more familiar to me. Most heartily we beseech thee, with thy favour to behold and bless thy servant, the President of the United States, and all others in authority, and the rest of the Episcopal Collect. Danforth, said he, I have repeated these prayers night and morning. It is now fifty-five years. And then he said he would go to sleep. He bent me down over him and kissed me, and he said, Look at my Bible, Captain, when I am gone. And I went away. But I had no thought it was the end. I thought he was tired and would sleep. I knew he was happy, and I wanted him to be alone. But in an hour, when the doctor went in gently, he found Nolan had breathed his life away with a smile. He had something pressed close to his lips. It was his father's badge of the Order of the Cincinnati. 
we looked at his bible and there was a slip of paper at the place where he had marked the text they desire a country even a heavenly wherefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he hath prepared for them a city on this slip of paper he had written bury me in the sea it has been my home and i love it but will not someone set up a stone for my memory at fort adams or at orleans that my disgrace may not be more than i ought to bear say on it in memory of philip nolan lieutenant in the army of the united states he loved his country as no other man has loved her but no man deserved less at her hands end of chapter eight part three